The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right, brothers and sisters, so good to have you back. Thanks for coming. If you can manage to not spit on your neighbor, why don't we stand up and sing together? There we go. We have an all-wise God who does not disclose all of his purposes to us. Ecclesiastes 7 says, What God has made crooked, no man can make straight. In the good times, rejoice. In the bad times, know that God has made the one as well as the other, yet in a way that we cannot understand. Earlier in the book, in chapter 3, he says why it is that God does what he does. He does all that he does, and he withholds disclosing full knowledge to us so that we will fear him. So we have a sovereign God working all things and yet not filling us in on all the details in order to generate dependence in our souls. Because chapter 6 tells us of Ecclesiastes that it's only those who fear God who have hope for a future. A repeated phrase all throughout the book is, life is like shepherding wind. In the ESV it says striving after wind, but very literally it's a shepherding of wind. That's what life's often like. We just can't get our hands around it. And yet, at the end of the book, The only time that the word, the root for shepherd is not used in that way. For us, the life is like shepherding wind. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 12, it says, all of wisdom comes from one shepherd. So we have a God who's been shepherding all things well. We cannot shepherd reality. Indeed, we can't get our hands around it. But he is the all-wise God. Some things he does not disclose to us in order that In his kindness, he might generate in our souls fear. He opposes proud people, but he gives grace to humble people. So let's celebrate his bigness, our smallness, for his glory. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Am I singing a different tune than you know? One second. I just... Help me, Susan, help me. I don't know what I did. Just the second verse of the... I'm not touching anything, I don't think.
Sing it really fast, yeah? Is this just not, is the remote? Let's see. Okay, let's try it. So we have an unresting God. All throughout the ancient world, the gods are known to go to sleep. In the morning when the sun rises, they wake up. We have prayers that we've found of people crying out and not having gods to talk to. It's not our God. He never sleeps, never slumbers. He needs nothing from us, and yet he chooses to use small things for his glory. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains I soaring above. Thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, Thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. Thy praise we would render, oh, help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Father, we ask for grace tonight. We thank you for your passion to preserve and display your glory. We ask that it would be done in this place. Exalt your son this evening for our joy, for the advancement of your name in this world. Through him we pray, amen. I think you may have seen this picture. At least I think it was shown very quickly. This is my crew My wife, Teresa, we've been, this is our 22nd year we're finishing up, so 23 years in June. And our oldest is Mary Jane, then in the middle is Ruthie, Janie is 17, Ruthie's almost 15, Isaac, front row right here, he's pushing 13, and then our younger three, Ezra Adisu, from Ethiopia, he's been with us for six years. And Joey and Joy, twin six-year-olds, have been with us for four years and can't imagine our family any differently. It's been in the last two years that the Lord has really been working in my wife and I, letting us recognize that we're not done with orphan and widow care. it's, It's like... The wind of God has just hit the flame of our souls and it's turned into a blaze of hunger and thirsting for more of God, 
specifically ministering in Ethiopia. And that's what ultimately brought me to connect with your own Pastor Alan. And so it's been very sweet after numerous email interchanges to finally have some time with him face to face. Um, It's just, it's been uh, unexpected and beautiful to see the Lord working in both my wife and I, um, giving us names, giving us faces, of giving us stories of people across the sea that are compelling us to move, both in theological famine relief and in care for the broken, holistic ministry. And I just love that your church is involved in both of those. And it's, it's very close to our heart. As I said last night, um, three weeks ago, I was in Ethiopia. I got to minister to, I had 60 church leaders teaching them the story of God. And when you don't have PowerPoint, uh, you get to use sheets like this. So we had them all hooked together, had a clothesline running across the classroom. We had four, we, we actually had two classrooms and two trees. And so I thought, this is cool. I get to teach uh, teach biblical theology underneath African trees. And so all through translators, these, these church leaders just hungering for more of God's word. Such a joy to be able to, to serve that way. And then um, there was a little boy that we were first matched with seven years ago. And we were a week away from his becoming ours and all the doors shut. And it was deeply, deeply grieving. We fought for a year and a half and unable to bring him home. But we've prayed for him for seven years. Weekly, if not daily, Charnet has been on our hearts. Every Mother's Day at Bethlehem Baptist, where I'm a part, uh, we have white roses at the front of the stage where um, mothers who have actually lost children can take a rose as an expression of their grief. And my wife, in that first year, took a rose on behalf of the grief she was feeling over this mother overseas who was having to lose her son due to poverty and brokenness. And as I said, we weren't able to bring Charnat home. For a year and a half, we fought for him, and then we were told it wasn't going to happen, and he was returned to his mother. But Teresa's had that rose. She dried it out, and, and she's prayed for him. Every year for seven years, we've celebrated Chernet's birthday, massive Ethiopian feast, uh, his picture on our table, just celebrating his life. And the beauty is that God just continues to remind us that he hasn't forgotten this fatherless boy because God continues to move us to pray. It's not just that there's a family on the other side of the sea that loves this boy and cares about the outcome of his faith. But it's that we have a God who has moved us in every moment to pray for him. That's how big our God is. It's not just that I pray to God and ask him to act. We have a God who is, who is big doing all things. All things are from him, through him and to him. So that every one of my prayers, every one of our prayers on behalf of that little boy have been instigated, instigated by God. That is, he has that little boy and his mommy on, their, on his mind so that he moves a family on the other side of the sea to be praying for him. And three weeks ago, I got to go back to the same town where Chernet was born. All we had was his name and his mother's name. 
and the neighborhood name that he was born in. We've had zero contact for five years, and God in his mercy let us connect. And so I, I found this little boy, and, and all I can explain it is a, is a vicious love, a vicious love, not just for him, but what welled up in my soul unexpectedly for his mom. Just a 29-year-old woman, so broken, so bruised, absolutely no family. She makes coffee in the morning and puts it in a thermos and walks around and offers people cups of coffee for small coins. That's her income. She invited us into her home three Saturdays ago. One room, just one room, no kitchen, no bathroom, just one room. Her former husband had left her a bed and a dresser and some stools. And out of her lack, she welcomed us in. And by God's grace, by God's grace, he just, he let her heart, which had been so bruised, so such a sense of hopelessness, just open up for love. I was able to share of God's son who for seven years had moved a family across the sea to be praying for her and for her boy. I was able to show her pictures. And God just moved. It was just mercy at work, opening her heart for love. I felt like I found a sister that had been abandoned and lost that had been abused over and over again, who had no one in the world and felt like she was absolutely alone. And I just wanted to surround her and put my arms around her and provide for her and protect her in a way that would help her and not hurt her. And I feel like one of the reasons that God would not let our family adopt Chernet was so that she would not be alone, so that she could get her boy back, but not only a boy, but that she could gain a family. It's just been a an unexpected, beautiful thing that God's been doing in our hearts, just starting out by praying so many years ago, God, I just want to understand Jesus more. I just want to love Jesus more. And seeing progressively God doing something in our lives and what's been birthed specifically is not just a hunger to care for the poor, but now he's given us faces. There's a mom and her son. I've looked into her eyes and I love her. We love her. And... I pray that you can taste that kind of, that you can experience that kind of connectivity with broken people. Um, we have a God who is absolutely big, who came down to broken people like us. Weak sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, humbling himself. And if we, if we carry ourselves as if we're better than others, if we distance ourselves from the dirty, we're not imaging Christ in the way that he would have us image him. May God help us become loving people. I hadn't planned to share all that, so that was bonus. I guess.
Tonight, we get to continue our story of God. He's at work, and we're part of that story. Okay, try to close your eyes. Everybody, just close your eyes. We're going to go through kingdom. Try to get it down. Try to verbalize it. If you're a second late, like your neighbor says it before you two, then, then still get it out. Let's just walk through the story of God's glory in Christ. K. Kick off in rebellion. I. Instrument of blessing. N. Nation redeemed and commissioned. G. <laughs> Government in the land. D. Dispersion and return. O. Overlap of the ages. M. Mission accomplished. Did I pray yet? I did? I did. Okay. I stand here knowing I desperately need help. So here we are. We've got five, five images to help guide our thinking. Nation redeemed and commissioned. What we're talking about here is the Exodus, Sinai, and wilderness. Picking up for where we left off yesterday. Here's our key passage. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. Again, this is the text that I would go to if I had to teach just from one text, this unit, this is where I would go. We'll touch on it shortly. We begin... With the offspring promise. You'll remember back with Abraham that the last time we saw the stars. Look at the stars, Abraham. So shall your offspring be. That was a promise that was unrealized. And because of that, the stars were just dotted. They were empty. But now we begin to see them fulfilled. Offspring promise begins to be fulfilled. So God had said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. We're talking about Egypt. This is what God told Abraham. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Exodus 1.7. But the people of Israel, just count, were fruitful. Increased greatly, multiplied, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Five different ways to say God is faithful to his promise. We've got to see that when we read Exodus 1-7. Why does he go out of the way? Remember the key words. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's what God commissioned Adam. That's what God commissioned Noah. That his image might be taken to the ends of the earth, that his glory could be seen. And God raises up Israel to be the agent through which the world would be blessed. And right now, God is beginning to fulfill his promise. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's starting. And intriguingly, as God begins to bless and fulfill his promise, it is the very means that brings about their intense suffering. The greater they grew, the more Pharaoh got angry. 
They cried out and were told in Exodus, at the very end of Exodus chapter 2, God heard and God remembered. He remembered. And so he raises up this man, the deliverer of redemption. What's his name? Moses. He is the instrument through which God will show his massive power and work to redeem Israel out of Egypt. He raises him up and we enter into a battle. Exodus chapter 5, 1 and 2, Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh for the first time. Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? He is the greatest king on the earth. And he has no clue who the Lord is. And we have a God who is over all things and who is passionate to be known. Passionate to preserve and display his glory above all things. And the greatest king on the planet doesn't know who he is. So God enters into offering him ten object lessons. Egypt was filled with peoples that worshipped all of nature. And the plagues target the Egyptian gods. The Nile turning to blood. Osiris was the river god. And when God says, let it be red, it's red immediately. That's the kind of God that Yahweh is. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I will not let the people go. Okay? Here's before the first play. God's reasoning. Redeeming a relationship and a reputation. He's entering in to gather his people to himself. But he's not only doing that. He is working for the fame of his name. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They will know that I am the Lord. That's why God instigates the plagues. They are about showing that he is big, that he is great over all created things. Before the seventh plague. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you, Pharaoh, And your people with pestilence. You could have been gone at this point. But I've kept you going. Why? Here it is. You would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed throughout all the earth. If I stand on the stage and say. I'm talking. Some of you are not writing. This is about me. I'm talking. My words are coming out of my mouth. You should be writing them down. They are very important. Not only that, if you have skill, you should write some songs about me. You should sing some praises. Keep your ears open. Don't go to sleep when I'm talking. There would be a problem. Because I have... I have no place to exalt myself. But we have a God who says, you shall love me with all of your heart and all of your soul, all of your might. This is a world about me. It has to be that way. Picture God 
above all things. And God creates a world wherein he purposes that anything other than himself is more important than himself. He purposes that other things would trump him. What happens to God? He's not God. It is necessary for God to be pursuing his own glory. Because if he does not, he will not be God and we need him to be God. Not only that, it is right. It's not only necessary for him to be passionate for his own name. Think about it, from the very beginning. Why does he create a people? He creates a people for the fame of his name. He makes people who are imagers of God. God, 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 God. So that when you eat your watermelon, when you identify the moose, you remember God. We shouldn't have a problem with this. It's necessary for God to exalt God or he won't be God, but it's also right because he is God. He is the only causer of all. He's the only uncaused one. He's the only judge. When you envision the throne room of heaven, don't envision anything else there. He is the single soul mover. It's not that there are are not other powers, other gods, other lords, in, in the sense of small g. I am God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Deuteronomy 10, 17. The small g gods are the title that the Old Testament gives to the angels and to the demons. They are real, but they are not capital G God. They are not supreme, they are merely servants. And there are also other lords like presidents and governors and tribal chiefs. But they are not supreme. Their authority that is true and that exists has been given to them by God, says Paul in Romans 13.1. It is right for God to call us to love him with all. And it is right for him to work for the fame of his name, overcoming Egypt, It is right because he's God. He is worthy to be recognized for who he is. But it's not only necessary and it's not only right. Ponder this. I think it is the most loving thing that God could do for any of us. So think about that. Why is it the most loving thing for God to do to call us to live for his glory and to recognize it? Whether we eat, whether we drink, to do it all for the glory of God. Why is that the most loving thing for him to do? Anybody? Pardon? It gives us security? In what way? Okay. So if we love him and he loves us, All of that power is working for us. There is no Savior apart from Him. Hear that. In His calling us to love Him, He's calling us to find safety, to find security where it can only be found. 
There's no other place. Everything else is a fraud. It will not last. The only true refuge is in him. So when he calls us to love him, it is loving. It's the most loving thing he could do. In my mind, there's one other reason why it's the most loving thing. Anybody know Psalm 1611? Pardon? Not that one. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. Full joy for the longest amount of time. Come, come, drink from the living water. Eat from the bread of life. It is free to all who will receive it. Come to me. Stop giving in to lower level pleasures. He wants us to gain. To live as Christ. To die as what? Gain. It's necessary for God to work for God. It is right for God to work for God. And it is the most loving thing he could ever call us to. To live for the fame of his name. Because in doing so, we find a savior. In doing so, we find full joy for the longest amount of time. I could have put you down by now, Pharaoh. But I am on a mission. A mission. Notice, it's not just to exalt himself. It's to gather a people to himself. I am working to get the word out. And do you remember the story of Rahab? When the spies show up, she says, Oh, I know who you are. Your God is the one that defeated the armies of Egypt 40 years before. And the word is still out. So that my name may be proclaimed all the earth. Do you remember the Gibeonites when they show up with Joshua? Why did you lie to us, Joshua says? Because we feared. Because we know what your God did to the Egyptians 40 years before. Do you remember what the Philistines say when the ark of God in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is brought into Shiloh, brought into the army camp? And all of Israel screams, what do the Philistines say? Oh my, the God or gods, different translations render it different way, different ways, who defeated the Egyptians so long ago has come into their camp. I'm I'm not just going to do six times, seven times. No, I'm going to keep you going, Pharaoh, and give you ten whole times. Ten lessons in order that my fame and my name might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Before the judgment at the Red Sea, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is the story of God, not the story of you and me. His story, that's what we're looking at here. After God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and who is like you, your people Israel, 
The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Don't miss that. He's redeeming a people to love them, to relate to them. Making himself a name and doing them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Do you see that last part? In defeating the Egyptians, Yahweh was defeating their gods. Who had the strength? All ancient battles were cosmic battles. We live in such a weird world that people fail to recognize the cosmic dimensions of everything. But the ancients had it right. Yahweh is always at work. So God moves them and we see the waters of judgment again. Waters of judgment, just like in the flood, but this time the salvation is brought not by a boat, but by parting the sea. And then as soon as they walk through on dry ground, the waters fall. Ezekiel 20 verse 9, reflecting on this, But I acted, why? For the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. To where? Where was he taking them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt? What was the goal? Promised land, and in route, before they arrived there, there was a stopping point. What was it? Sinai. So God gives them his law. A law in which is written expressions of the very character of God. Now we come to the key passage for this unit. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, in light of this gracious redemption, hear that, before he called them to obey, he redeemed them from Egypt. Now, this is not exactly equivalent to what we have in the New Covenant. It's only an analogy. But in both the Old and the New Covenant, we have a gracious redemption that precedes the gracious law-giving. That is, always, in the structure of the story, salvation precedes the command to obey. It's not the other way around. But in the Old Covenant, what we have is that it's only external. It's external freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's an external law written on tablets of stone that never reaches the heart for the majority. And so even though the redemption precedes the call to obey, both the redemption and the call to obey were given to a majority hard-hearted people. And that's why Paul, I think rightly, and Moses would have agreed, we'll see it, talked about the Old Covenant as bearing a ministry of condemnation. It condemned Israel. Because a good law, the law wasn't bad. No, the law is holy, righteous, and good, says Paul. In Romans 7. In Romans 2, he says it is the 
embodiment of all knowledge and truth. Romans 2. But when you give all of that knowledge and all of that truth to a blind, deaf, and hard-hearted people, the obedience is just external. It's not flowing out of a heart of love, a heart of surrender, and it becomes legalism. And it becomes deadly. But just see how it's framed. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, now in light of the gracious redemption, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Think about the role that God had told Abraham Israel would have. Through you, all the world will be blessed. So the world is sitting in curse. And into the middle of that world, God puts Israel. That's the image we have here. You'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Among the peoples, 70 families of the earth that have just sprung out and created the culture of rebellion that fills the world, right in the middle of that is Israel. And God says, you have... A commission, nation redeemed and commissioned. That's N. The commission is, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if, 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 then in the midst of all the world, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you'll obey my law, you will be a holy people. Why? Because the law is holy. And if they live out the law, they will be living out the very character of God. Now, think about what it says here, though. It doesn't say that Israel would have priests. It says that the entire kingdom of Israel would be priests. Now, Israel is going to have priests. They're going to have a tabernacle. Even in this chapter... We learn that Israel already had priests. So the entire nation of Israel, when they want to come and encounter God, they come to the priests. The priests are mediators of God's word to the people. And they are mediators of the people's sin before God. So they offer the sacrifices to the Lord, the substitute, the priests stand as mediators between God and the rest of the nation. Through the priests, relationship happens. But now what we're being told is that in the context of the entire world, all of Israel will be a nation of priests. Implication. The world will encounter God through you. Do you understand your mission? But there's a contingency. And it's an echo of the contingency I mentioned in Genesis chapter 12. Be a blessing so that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here, obey. And then you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's different ways we can express conditions. If you get on the plane 
in Atlanta, then you can arrive at Greenville. That's a true condition. The second half is only fulfilled once the plane rides over. But we could also say, if you get on the plane in Atlanta, you'll have 40 minutes to read before you get to Greenville. The experience of being on the plane is the very time in which you read. The reading doesn't happen after your time on the plane. It happens while you're on the plane. And that's a different type of condition. And I think this is the second type of condition. Wherein, while they are living out in obedience to God's word, they will be imaging his holiness. It's not something that happens after the fact. It happens while they are living. While you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. While you are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. In the midst of that, hunger and thirsting, pursuing, following, dependent, following. In the midst of that, the light is going to be shining. And people are going to be affected by your movement toward God. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation while you're living out the way that I've called you to live. The second fundamental text in this whole unit of nation redeemed and commissioned is right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the text that Jesus said was the first and greatest commandment. When it says the Lord our God, the Lord is one, I think it's echoing the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me or before me. In that commandment of the first of the Ten Commandments, the language of to have someone or something before or in my presence If we just say, you shall have no other gods before me, we might think it's talking about priority. Like as long as I'm first in the list, there could be many other things that you're pursuing, but as long as I'm first, that's what I'm asking for. No other gods before me. As long as I'm in the front, that's okay. But but the phrase in Hebrew is explicit. In every other instance... When before shows up in the Old Testament and it has a personal object in contrast to like before a house or something. If it, whenever it's a person, before me, before him, before Joe and Jane. In every instance, it's always talking about a location. It's not before in the sense of priority, it's before in the sense of presence. When it says that the Lord is one, I think the point is there is only one causer of all. There is only one judge in the world. There is only one Yahweh. No, nothing else compares to him. To say that there is no other gods beside him or before him or in his presence, he's saying there is only one chief being in the universe 
It's God. It's Yahweh. That's his name. He is only one. And there's an implication to that. If he is over all things, if indeed everything is coming from him, then we should love him with all. Now, some people, and I think wrongly, have interpreted this like the right side of the circle. As if we have a hearty part, and we have a solely part, and we have a mighty part. Love God with your heart. Love God, soul, in the Psalms is sometimes paralleled with spirit, so maybe that's talking about the spirit side of me. I've got my desires and my longings, and then love him with your spirit side, and then mighty part, maybe your strength, your muscles. But if you just go in and do a, type in each of those three words into the first five books of Moses, and this happens to be in Moses' book of Deuteronomy, you see that Moses is very restricted in how he uses these terms. Heart, consistently, all throughout the Old Testament, not only in Moses' words, always means hunger, desire. It's, it's what's inside. It can even include our thoughts. In Deuteronomy 29, he's going to say, God has not given you a heart to know. And we would usually use that language of mind. But that is part of the heart. Everything inside is the heart. When it comes to the word for soul, we see that, for example, in Genesis 2-7. The Lord makes the first human-shaped sandcastle. He makes it, and then he breathes into it the breath of life, and man became a living soul, creature. It's this word. It's he became a being. It included his body and all that animated it. All of his hungers, all of his passions were part of his soul, but there was so much more. It included his flesh, his eyeballs, his ears, his nose hairs. It was his being. And so that's why you see here, I have heart on the inside. Love me with all that is internal, but don't stop there. Let it impact your entire life. Then we come to the third one, and this is the tricky one. Because the word is simply ma'oth, which we see 298 times in the Old Testament as an adverb. You guys all know how this word is rendered in Genesis 1.30, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That very is this word. But it usually is just rendered as an adverb, but not here. Here it's love him with your... It's a noun. And it only occurs two times like this. Love him with your, your veriness. And what did that mean? The other time is in 2 Kings 23 where it says, Josiah turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his veriness. So the Greek translators said, oh, it's power. The Aramaic translators said, it's his wealth. That's how they rendered it. 
If I have the trajectory right, that heart is everything that's on the inside, soul for Moses meant one's entire being, then there's a trajectory happening here. And it seems very possible to me that veriness means all of our substance, all that we have that's identified with us. Love God with all of that. The music we listen to. The clothes we dress in. The car we drive. Our libraries. All of that is part of us. It's identified with us. And loving God even reaches that deep. If this is indeed the picture, then there is no closet of our lives that can be left shut. Love for God is to be all-encompassing. And then we see it play itself out in the very next verses where it says in Deuteronomy 6.6, And these words that I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, impacting all that you do, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, impacting all that you see. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and the ESV says on your gates, like it's a picket fence, but the Hebrew says in your gates, recognizing that we're talking about a city gate, where there's a wall that's 25 feet thick and they walk through it. And that's where the politics in ancient Israel happened. It's where Ruth was redeemed in the city gate. It's where the woman, the wife of noble characters, husband sits among the elders of the land in the city gate. So what we're talking about there is let your deeds... Let your perspective say, there is only one God and I love him with all. Let those who come in your house and go out of your house recognize what takes place in there is about God. And then everything that happens in the marketplace of your life. Love for God is to control that too. This is radical, life-encompassing, community-impacting love. It's no wonder that Jesus said, that's the most important commandment. Look at the ten words here. They're called ten words in the Hebrew text. We call them ten commandments. Just notice how they're all framed. None of them say, I have a right to my own wife, so you don't touch her. They don't say, child, listen to me. I'm your mom. I'm your dad. They don't say, this is my property. I get to keep it. 
Instead, all of the ten words look outward. They're shaping a biblical perspective of leadership. A leader is not one who calls attention to himself. A leader is one who lives outward. It's principally focused, the Ten Commandments are all focused on the head of the household. It doesn't say, do not... um, do not commit adultery with your neighbor's husband. It says, do not commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. It's focused principally on the heads of the households, the leaders in the community, and I think it's trying to correct misperceptions about what it means to be a leader. Notice how I've framed them here, not as my Bill of Rights, but as the rights of the bill of other people's rights. Have no other gods. God's right to exclusive allegiance. Never bear the Lord's name in vain. God's right to proper representation. Remember the Sabbath day. The right to another person's time and life. You're going to preserve that for them. Honor your parents. Your parents' right to respect. Don't murder Why? Because your neighbor has a right to life. Never commit adultery because your neighbor has a right to sexual purity in his own marriage. Don't steal. Why? Because your neighbor has a right to personal property. Don't bear false witness in court because your neighbor has a right to honest testimony. Don't covet your neighbor's house because of your neighbor's right to his own security. Don't covet your neighbor's household because of your neighbor's right to household security. This will transform how we think. The Ten Commandments are not about me. What it means to be lifted up in the center is not to have everybody focused on you, but to have you focused on everyone else, serving, loving, giving of yourself, working for their rights, not your own. That's how the Ten Commandments are framed. It's about love of God and love of neighbor, not love of self. God is is just giving to Israel some radical marching orders. These are not burdensome, bad laws. These are God-honoring, God-exalting, the right kind of living laws. And yet they're given to a bunch of hard-hearted people. And it breaks them. And therefore, there was the need for something. There was the need for a substitute. Because the wrath of God is real and the holiness of God is real. And God takes sin seriously because he takes his own glory seriously. Hell exists not because God is bad. Hell exists because God is good. You can feel this. If you're the one who's been deeply hurt by someone, And that someone is brought before the judge. And that judge says, it's no big deal. I don't care about your pain. And he lets that person go. Is that a good judge? Is that a good judge? Is that the kind of judge we want working for us if we've been the offended, broken party? No. And we don't have a God who's that kind of a judge. 
We have a God who is always the right kind of judge, who works justice every time. And the challenge is that we're the ones who are the guilty parties. And he has to be just. Mercy is not cheap. It takes the death of either the sinner or the substitute. God's wrath is real. And the fires are going to be kindled. And they are poured out on the altar. We have to see this as war. Zephaniah chapter 2 portrays the future day of judgment as not only a war, but it calls it a sacrifice. That's what God is doing at the cross. He is pouring out all of his wrath, just like he did in the flood, just like he did against the Canaanites. He's pouring it out on his son, the fires of his wrath, just emblazing upon his son. It's war. And all the while, Christ is standing there looking at us in his eyes, saying, I forgive you. Atonement. It's a massive part of Old Testament theology that was not embraced by most. Just see how this is framed. God, or Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go up with me, don't bring us up from here. Remember, right after the golden calf episode, God says, I'm done with you. I'm not going to go with you to the promised land. Moses pleads. God says, okay, okay, I will go. But why does he say it's so necessary? How will it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Moses says this. I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the earth? The only thing that makes Israel different from the rest of the world is God. It's nothing innate in who they are. It was the same way with, with Noah. Remember that? Noah found grace. That's all that made him different. It was all about God. It was nothing innate in him that set him apart. It was God working in him what was pleasing in his sight. And Moses says, if you don't go up with us, nothing will change. The tabernacle. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. If we have chance on Friday, I'm hoping to to just take the image of temple from the Garden of Eden all the way up to Revelation 21 through 22, to after we get done with the story, to go back through the whole story just with this single theme. But what I want you to notice is just the structure of the tabernacle right now. There's two things that fill the equal quadrants. Entrance is always eastward in ancient temples. Outside the Bible, it was because the sun would rise and the light would shine through all the gates into the Holy of Holies and the idol would wake up. Not so in Israel. God made sure there was a curtain at all three spots so that the glory that they were encountering was known to not be reflective but authentic. But notice the two central quadrants that you have in the tabernacle. And the same is in the temple. The temple is exactly the same as the tabernacle except it's double in size.
at the most holy place, the holy of holies, at the very center of that quadrant is the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. And any time people came to the temple, what they were trying to do is have a relationship with, the, with this God in his palace. And what was amazing is that there were certain sacrifices that God actually let the people eat. It was like a potluck in the presence of the king. They would come, they would bring their offering, and then he would let them eat it at his table. They would enjoy it all together in the presence of the great king. But there's only one way you can enter. In order to get to the throne room, the throne room, you have to first come through the altar. And the altar is what is on the center of the first quadrant. The throne, God reigns over all, and yet he wants to have a relationship with sinners. It's an unbelievable picture of the gospel. I hope I can... I hope we have time for me to unpack more of this. Take a male goat for a sin offering. To sacrifice before the Lord. Why? Why do you need the sin offering? Because today the Lord will appear to you. Here, this is, this is a description of the very first sacrifice ever done in the tabernacle after it was made. Why? Why do you need the substitute to stand on your behalf so that you can have an encounter with the living God and not be incinerated? I want to have an encounter with you. I want you, it says, to meet before the Lord. The Lord will appear to you. And for, you, for him to appear means that you have to have a substitute. He keeps going. This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. Why? Why did he command them to sacrifice? That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. To have encounters with glory. This summer is the Olympics. I really enjoy the Olympics. It's just just awesome to see how God can make the human body operate at such unbelievably high levels. And as we see it played out in front of us, we are witnessing glory. It is from our God, and it is for our God. And sadly, so many, so many miss it. Tonight, for my supper, my son said, Dad, can we go to Cracker Barrel? So we go to Cracker Barrel, and he I say, well, what do you want to get? And he says, oh, I want eggs, and I want bacon, and I want pancakes, and I want hash browns, but I don't see anything that will allow me to get both the hash browns and the pancakes. Jordan, that was our waiter. Is there any way I, we can do this? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's called the grandma's breakfast. It's not in there, but, but you can get it. Awesome, we'll both have it. You know, add in one of those you know, cold root beers, that come in the icy mug, that would, that would be great. Sure, we'll do it. Every bite, it was like glory. I mean, just, it goes in, and it just, it fills up the tummy, and it, it, it hits the palate first, and it's just like, oh, this is good. And every swig of that cold, ice-cold root beer, just going down. Are you all getting thirsty? It was just like, 
praise the Lord. We know what glory is. And God is saying, just ratchet it up one octave to the point of praise. Don't let it stop by delighting in the hot fudge Sunday, delighting in your kid's ballet performance. Don't let it stop there. Raise it up one octave. Don't forget me. Say thank you. And in the midst of suffering, what does it look like? What does it look like to live for the glory of our God? To encounter glory. I think at the most base level, it's just saying help. In the moment of our weakness, he is shown massively strong. If we can just look to him, all of a sudden, it's like the curtains of heaven open and the world is able to experience something at a cosmic, cosmic realities are at work. Think about the whole story of Job. Job fears you because of what you give him. Yahweh says, okay, go ahead. You can have him. Just don't touch his body. Whatever you want, take it away. Off goes the flocks. Off goes the wealth. There goes his seven sons and three daughters. And Job knelt down and he worshipped. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Period. Quotation mark. In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. That's good theology. That's what the narrator of Job is telling us. God, help me be that kind of a man in the midst of suffering. Who doesn't act as though you have skipped camp that you are away from me, but rather help me to know that you are for me 100% right now, even though I can't understand and the skies are, are so dark. I'm in the middle of the shadow of death, but you are with me. Give me that kind of faith. And God is glorified. He wanted them to have glory, and it would only come if they were identified with the substitute. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and and they just shouted, praise. But notice how it's worded next. Now Dadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now notice how the exact same phrase is paralleled. Verse 24 said, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed. Now, verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. The fires of God's glory either consume the sinners or it consumes the substitute. Those are the two options. And God gives sacrifice in order that we might have encounters with glory and not be incinerated. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist. Israel gets all this, 
glory, good news, help, hope, and they turn. They are cold. They are distant. They don't have ears to hear. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Hear that. God wanted faith in the Old Testament. The problem was the lack of it. How long will they not believe me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, but truly as I live and as all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land. So Israel has this great encounter. They go up to the mountain past the mountain, they get up to Kadesh Barnea, they send in the 12 spies, 10 of them come back and say the giants are too big. How long will you not believe? Don't be so close to the giant that it shadows out the beauty of the, and the bigness of the sun. Just step back and remember that there is someone who is over all things and this giant is nothing compared to him. So God sends Israel on a 40-year expedition, not of wandering randomly, but of waiting and following. And nothing changes. He raises up a new generation. It's amazing. The census list in Numbers 1 is repeated in Numbers 26 with a new generation. What's amazing is that there's a new generation. They don't grow, which means that there's some level of curse of God. They're not multiplying, filling the earth. But the numbers are almost identical. There's a new generation, just as if a new creation has happened, a new opportunity, and they're going to get to go into the land. But this is Moses talking to them just before they enter into the land. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, For you are a stubborn people, stubbornness. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land and up until you came to this place, you have been rebellious. So in Numbers 14, the word was they were unbelieving. Now they're called stubborn and then they're called rebellious. That's Israel. And those three words show up over and over and over again. That's their nature. Here's why. Deuteronomy 29.4 But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. They were blind, they were deaf, and they were ignorant. And the crazy thing is that they couldn't change it. They didn't want to change it. But it says here that it's only a gift. God didn't give them the eyes to see. He didn't give them the ears to hear. He didn't give them a heart to know. And so what we have is from the days of Moses in 1406 all the way for another 1400 years up until the time of Christ, we have generation after generation after generation of hard-hearted, ignorant, blind, deaf people existing under the curse of God. And the Old Testament, as we walk through it, it just gets darker and darker and darker. 
fulfilling all that God promised would happen. The Lord said to Moses, this is, Moses knows this. He understands. Moses understands. It's not just Paul looking backwards. Moses understood from the get-go that the old covenant bore a ministry of condemnation. That the old covenant, all of his words, love the Lord with all your heart. Get it on your heart. Love your neighbor. He knew all of these good calls would fall on deaf ears and result in their judgment and death. Look at this text. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. You're about to die. What's going to happen? This people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. God is already predicting... He's just laying out the history of Israel that we read about in Joshua through Kings. He's saying they're going to go into the land, they're going to turn from me, and ultimately the curses that are written in this book are going to be poured down upon them. Moses knew his ministry was a ministry of condemnation. Moses knew it. And Paul affirmed it. The law kills. But it's not because the law kills calls for the wrong thing. It's that that law is given to hard-hearted people. Remember how Paul talks in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. But notice, think about it, just like in, like we've already seen in Genesis chapter 3, like we already saw in the rest of Genesis with respect to Abraham, God does not let the story, he doesn't let curse be the final word. He's looking ahead, and, and even within this context, he's already giving the words of hope and reminding us of the gospel promise. Remember, Abraham, he's outside at night and God says, look at the stars. Remember that? All the stars are pointers that I will be faithful. Now look at this text. This is through Balaam. I see him, but not now. Him. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. It's a long ways off. The him becomes a star, a single star. A star shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Think about that. The imagery that's being put onto the mind and its connection with Genesis 3.15. The one who will come is a star. Right now it seems like darkness. That's what Jesus enters into. Darkness filled the earth. And then he's called the light of the world. The very last title given to Jesus in the book of Revelation 22 verse 16 is, he is the bright and morning star. What happens is that it's, it's nighttime. We feel the weightiness of darkness. All we see is stars though reminding us that even in the darkness, there is hope brewing. And then dawn breaks. And as that single light 
rises. All the rest of the stars' lights grow strangely dim in the light of His glory, in the light of His grace. I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Notice that imagery once again. He'll possess the gates of his enemies. He has a kingdom, but now the kingdom is going to be expanding beyond its borders to possess enemy gates. They are going to be claimed as his turf as the kingdom moves and expands and fills the earth in accordance with the original vision in Genesis chapter 128. It's as if he is the ultimate image bearer and through him, the glory of God is going to fill the earth. He's the ultimate image bearer and through him, he will subdue. He will do and be what Adam was supposed to do and be. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy all the survivors of the cities. Deuteronomy 30, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. That heart problem that Israel had, the great physician will show up and overcome that heart problem. If you've got a heart problem, you can't solve it yourself. Open heart surgery. If you try, you will die. You need a doctor. And the Old Testament is anticipating the day when the doctor will come. And circumcise their hearts, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Kick off in rebellion, instrument of blessing, Nation redeemed and commissioned. That was a big unit. But we've come to Deuteronomy now. We've finished Deuteronomy. Let me just pause. Questions on this section. Some of you want to ask a question, but you're just nervous. Don't be nervous. Get it out. Let it out. I have one. Anybody? What do I think about the salvation of all of the Israelites who were rebellious? I'll just read from Romans 9 to give clarity on this. What do I think about the salvation of all those rebels who died? In verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from Jews only, 
but also from Gentiles. It honestly makes, if, if I just pause, it makes me tremble. It, it makes me tremble to consider the weightiness of the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of rebellion, and the way that God portrayed it for so long. They perished in the wilderness. They died under curse. And for those that died in their rebellion, they are not saved. What happens is that rather than being like Adam, imaging God like Adam was supposed to be, just like Adam was called to image the Lord, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But in being like Adam, they received the judgment that Adam received, that death sentence. And the only way that they could receive mercy in light of the future substitute that would come is by surrendering to God and hoping in the offspring promise. And we don't see evidence that that happened. Instead, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, he compares them, as they're going to crucify him, he compares them to the generation after generation after generation of Israelites who failed to heed the voice of the prophets and instead martyred them. And in declaring God's wrath against the Pharisees, he's declaring God's wrath against all those generations that failed to listen when God mercifully sent them preacher after preacher after preacher. And what's, what's amazing to me is that I should be there. Acts chapter 2, the same day that 3,000 people come to Christ at Pentecost, they arrive there because they're gathered to Jerusalem for this feast. And Peter says, you crucified the Son of God. You did it. Whether they were there, I don't even know. Whether they were part of the crowd that was saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. I was part of that. Wherever they were from, was, they, were, they were part of that in, in rejecting God and His offer of mercy. And, and that, while I was still a sinner, Christ would come in and overcome the rebellion of my heart. He would stop me from resisting the Spirit anymore. He would enter into my deadness and say, Lazarus, come forth! That, that just awes me. And that he would use, I mean, I, th- I think about, my, you saw my 17-year-old and my 15-year-old. When Janie was, my 17-year-old was five and Ruthie were, was three, I remember sitting on the couch with them, walking through the story of God's glory in Christ. It wasn't quite like this, but we were just walking through the Old Testament, story after story. We didn't hit them all, but I remember walking through the book of Kings 
And we would come, and we, we sat down, and my five-year-old one day, she, she says, what are we going to read? And I said, we're going to read from the book of Kings. And her response, this five-year-old's response after three weeks in the book of Kings, hers was, Dad, do we have to read the story about all those people that continued to rebel from God, and then he killed them? And in that moment, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was caught up into what dads have been doing for millennia, just retelling the story to their kids in order that they might feel the weightiness of sin and the seriousness of our God and the beauty of His holiness and the need for a Savior. And most of Israel, as we read it in the book, climaxing in Christ rejected. And it was part of the purpose of God. Very next chapter, Romans 11, it says, verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Righteousness. The elect obtained it by faith, but the rest were hardened. That's a divine passive. It doesn't say they were hard. It says they were hardened. And then it quotes Isaiah. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And he did that, I believe. Why does God do things the way he does? It's always for his glory. But in what way? Would he allow century after century after century of death and destruction and let people continue to live in their wickedness, live in their rebellion? Why would he do that and not overcome it? I believe it was because he wanted to magnify the beauty of his son before vessels of mercy as much as he could. To magnify the neediness of humanity for a beautiful Savior like his son. And so all of a sudden, all of us get to enjoy mercy. And in reading the Old Testament, it helps us enjoy mercy. It helps us stand in awe that the biggest problem in this world is not the problem of evil, but the problem of good. That I get to benefit from mercy. Me. There's nothing about me that is worthy He didn't choose me because of who I was. And I'm awed. And it moves me to retain humility and not pride. To stand awed by this beautiful Savior. Big answer to a smaller question. I think they're dead. And I think they will be judged in hell. But not all. But in the same way, anyone who continues to retain... Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.com. 
For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.